0: interview with Dominic Reisig. Today we have professor and extension specialist Dominic Reisig from the universe, uh, North, Ca- North Carolina State University in the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology. He's at the Tidewater Research Station. Uh, Dominic's lab works in corn, cotton, soybeans, and small grains. Is that right, Dominic? Please unmute yourself. Tell the people more than what I just did about yourself.
1: Uh, nope, you nailed it. That, that's it. You got it. But we
0: brought you in because you shared with us a bunch of work you've been doing in the area of stink bugs and corn. First of all, can, can you validate my feelings here that uh, we're of a certain age? Stink bugs and corn, have they always been a pest? Is that uh, something you all face uh, quite a bit down in the South? Because I'm, I'm from the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Iowa. I don't think of stink bugs as being a big corn pest.
1: I mean, like the earliest work that you, that you can find in the published literature comes out of the Midwest. So I guess they have been around for a while, but when I showed up here in, uh, 2009, they were primarily an issue next to wheat. So the, we have a species of euchistus, call them brown stink bugs. They move out of overwintering. They move into wheat. They feed on it in the boot stage and as the grain's developing. And they undergo a generation in wheat. And when the growers would pick the wheat, they'd move into neighboring crops. And if it was corn, there'd be corn damage. But since that time, it's expanded as a problem, not just next to wheat. It's expanded as a problem in corn throughout the southeast and southern U.S. And I would claim that it's our top insect pest of corn now. So
0: Wow. Wow. You don't have the rootworms down there in North Carolina.
1: We would if we, uh, if we didn't rotate. So they're an issue for us in the mountains where guys that run dairies have silage and transportation costs is an issue. So they're not rotating corn. Legend, I don't know if this is true, but apparently some of those fields haven't been rotated since the Civil War. I don't know why they would or would not have rotated during the war, but <laughs> that's what wow. the claim is. <laughs> wow. That's, that's amazing. amazing.
2: <laughs> so, so Dominic, you mentioned one species. Do you have multiple species that you, you find when you scout?
1: Yes. We have uh, brown stink bug, which is primarily Euschistus service. There's a number of different Euschistus species, but that's the primary one. And then we have southern green stink bug. And that's more of an issue when we have warm winters. So I, I would think as you went farther south, and then even as you got down into southern Georgia, That's going to be more of a pest down there because it it just doesn't tolerate cold winters really well. So we've seen increasing issues with southern green stink bugs. We've had a number of warm winters in a row. So right now we're about 50-50 of that brown stink bug in southern green. And then we have these weird kind of one-off situations where we'll sometimes get green stink bug, which is different than southern green. But those are the primary species we see in corn. Mm
2: -hmm. And and do they all leave the cornfield for the winter, or do some of them stay, like, in residue within the corn?
1: It's a good question that I don't really know the answer to. They're they're more of an issue behind no-till, but it seems like uh, no-till soybeans. Like, this is the Soybean Pest podcast, and I hate to do this to soybeans, but I think they're part of the stink bug problem in corn.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you're not seeing the brown marmorated stink bug yet as a pest?
1: Yeah, we actually do have problems okay. with brown marmorated, but the interesting thing, at least for our state, is the, the big field crop acres don't really overlap too much with the brown marmorated stink bugs, I guess, tolerable or preferred range. Mm-hmm. So it's more of an issue in higher elevations, um, kind of cooler climates. We're not sure if that's a function of temperature and hosts or maybe both, but just as you get farther east in our state it gets warmer and more field crops are there and there's fewer brown marmorated. but if we were to plant corn in brown marmorated heavy areas they could be an issue there hmm.
0: when do you see the um, the stink bugs coming into corn and and how what's the how do you
1: scout for them in your part of the world yeah it's a pretty um it's a pretty predictable pattern fortunately but it's not Like, each field is different, which makes them challenging to scout for. But we we typically see some dribbles of early season movement. So, like, I mean, as soon as corn is planted and coming up, maybe in April or May, you can find some fields somewhere in the state that will just be loaded with stink bugs. Mostly, we don't see the vast majority of our stink bugs in corn until... Later in the season, like the end of May and beginning of, of June, that tends to be the peak time for, for populations. So they kind of just build in abundance over the season and then they kind of peak around there. And then there's always some like low level of stink bug presence in the field throughout the year, but they tend to drop off once we hit the reproductive stages.
0: So uh, May and June uh, corresponds to what stage of corn for you all? It
1: tends to peak around tasseling.
0: Okay, so you're, yeah, you're um, a couple of months ahead of us, right, in a typical year. I think we're now getting, are we seeing tasseling? Not yet. We're, uh, um, Yeah, so we've still probably got a couple of weeks before, you know, we would get to the point where you've just seen your peak. Um, okay. Uh,
2: so why did they leave, Dominic? You think there would be plenty of, of, like tissue for them to feed on, especially with an ear.
1: I don't know. They, they, <laughs> so I will say this: I, I'm starting bugs, to rethink this whole podcast thing because I think that's too now. <laughs> <laughs> you said you don't know. Okay, but you know how it is, right? The more you learn about something, the, the more you understand that. Well, we really don't know the answer to that. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I do know. Stink bugs will eat anything. So we had a, we had one sustain itself on a Christmas cactus in our lab inside for months. We, uh, I had a student that caged some on pine needles and they sustained themselves on pine needles. Yes, they, they will eat anything, but they have their, these are adults. Yes, yes, adults. They have their preferred food. So this, so even in, even in wheat where they build these generations up in wheat, you know, they'll be feeding right up to harvest and that wheat is mature and it's dry. And of course they're using their, their saliva to, make the tissue digestible and ingested, and they can do that. But why would you do that when you could just move over to this cornfield and it's nice and lush and I could just feed on that. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> we, we did some work. We did some work looking at the movement of stink bugs from wheat to corn. And we did notice that as the wheat became more mature, they tended to move towards the, the edge of the wheat. So they tended to move towards the edge of the wheat as the wheat maturity progressed and right prior to harvest and then when they harvested the wheat, that's when they moved over to corn. And so they're moving into corn as, as hosts become less attractive or they just can't feed on them. And then they're moving into corn and feeding on it. But why are they choosing to stay into corn and leave corn and, and why a portion of them does and, and does not, I'm not sure. Hmm. I think the reason they're peaking around tasseling is the, pr- the primary ear is forming just prior to tasseling. And that's where they're concentrating, they're feeding it on, right, where that primary and secondary ear is forming. You can see their punctures there. You can see them congregating there. And so they're clearly feeding on where that plant is putting its, for lack, lack of a scientific term, its reproductive muscle into. But, you know, I don't know why, why some of them stay and why some of them go, like, throughout the season.
2: So the feeding that's concentrated on that developing ear is where the economic injury occurs so the ear doesn't form normally?
1: Yeah there's there's three like time periods where it can damage the corn plant. The first is when it's the seedling and of course they can kill the plant if it's if they're feeding early enough. But the the growing point doesn't reach the soil surface until like V4, V5 anyway. And so you you'll see them with their head buried into the soil or if the furrow's open, you know, damaging the plant there. Then once that growing point's at the soil surface, they don't really seem to cause any sort of injury to the corn until that, that ear starts forming. And then they're, they're feeding on cells that are dividing. And if they damage those cells before they divide, you have a a misshapen ear. It doesn't pollinate right. And that's, that's kind of the worst uh, damage that we see is to that ear as it's, as it's trying to push out, but they still can damage the plant even in the reproductive stages, so they can destroy kernels. And then even after the kernels are, are pollinated, they're filled out, they can still transmit um, pathogens that can cause problems with aflatoxins and other mycotoxins.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for management,
0: when do you recommend uh, scouting and then uh, targeting a population Cause it sounds like you want to prevent that, uh, that feeding on the developing ear zone. So it yeah. must be a little bit tricky, right? To know one, if you've got enough that are going to need to be managed and then getting in and spraying
1: in a way that's effective to prevent that damage from happening. Yeah. The scouting, scouting stink bugs and corn is terrible. <laughs> oh. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so like early season is very it's easy, okay. right? You can, you can just yeah. move that. You can just, and, and this is, it's a lot like the, um like the soybean gallmage, like where they're, they, they, you know, they prefer edges. And so you could just kind of go to the edge. And if there's not stink bugs there, they're probably not in the middle of the field. Nobody really scouts early season because we have really good efficacy from our seed treatments, but there's situations where they, they're just so numerous that they're able to overwhelm the seed treatment or, maybe it's not taking up the insecticide or whatever anyway we do see some early season injury and i would encourage folks to scout then but no one ever does the the scouting that takes place prior to tasseling this has been kind of a heavy lift from extension we do have some consultants that are actually charging growers now and they do scout for stink bugs and corn which is great and uh we have a a uh a threshold that's a you know, I'm going to have to edit this out. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do that. Yeah. yeah it's a, a known sequential for it. stop sampling plan and a partial plant threshold. Is that right? Did that sound right? Like
2: a binomial sequential plan?
1: It's not a binomial one. Oh. It's one of the oh, – what's it called? Sequential stop sampling plan is what it's called. Okay. The idea being that you accumulate
0: so many observations – And you know, whether you need to keep sampling versus, okay, you got enough info and this field needs to be hosed down.
1: Yes. And when I, when I made this threshold, like the, the, the PhD student was really, really mad because he said, no, sir, you're simplifying the threshold. And I'm like, yeah, I'm dealing with growers here. Like this is going to be super complicated for them. I can't even remember the name. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, okay
0: so let's start over on the sampling again and three two one go
1: yeah we have a a sequential stop sampling plan that we recommend for stink bugs and it's it's based on a partial plant sample so our original recommendations were based on some some nice cage studies that were done and they were based on the whole plant and we found that we could take advantage of the stink bugs preference to be on certain parts of the plant Hmm. so now that it can actually save up to 60% of scouting time. So if you just sample certain parts of the plant, you don't have to sample the whole plant. And then the sequential stop sampling plan just means that if you have stink bugs of us, if you're not finding a lot of stink bugs, you can just stop sampling. If you're finding a ton of stink bugs, you know, you need a treat. And if you're finding them somewhere in the middle, you can either sample some more until you're confident to make a treatment decision or, if you like to roll the dice, you can just spray or not spray, <laughs> but but that's that's the that's the kind of threshold we've been recommending to our growers. We've also done some some work uh, with more modern hybrids and also with higher yielding potential, and we've we've lowered our threshold a little bit during that um, oh. ear formation time based on that information. So, how
0: critical is timing to preventing that damage from happening? Because I. At the end there, as you were describing sort of the options from using your sequential stop sampling plan, did I get that right? I think so. Um, Yeah. Uh, It sounds like, you know, you could go ahead and spray anyway, but is this the kind of pest where the coverage and the residual time of the product is not going to be enough to um, get you close enough to good protection, that you're going to have to scout in order to time it just right? Yeah, that,
1: that is extremely difficult because when the stink bug is damaging that, that primary ear, the, the plant is progressing in its, in its growth very rapidly. So it's, it's not yet tasseled and you actually have to peel back, uh, the leaves to see where that primary ear is going to be. And then you can kind of get a search pattern and figure out where that's going to be on the plant and sample there. The problem is, you know, you can figure that out for one field and then you go down the road and it's in a completely different stage. And that, when that corn plant is growing taller before it's about to tassel in good conditions, it can put on a leaf in a day and a half. So mm. it's just, it's just growing extremely rapidly. And so that time period that you have to make a decision window to treat and do a really good job treating is about a week and a half for that field. And then it's going to be completely different for another field. And so most growers are just making a decision on the farm basis because these treatments have to go out by air. Most growers don't have equipment to run ground rigs over top of their corn. And so they're kind of making a a, a, a farm decision. But timing is critical. Now, to your, your point about coverage, I think those are I think that's a big uh, stumbling block for us because we're not delivering the product to where the stink bugs are. They're congregating ar- around where that primary is forming. You have to get through a lot of leaves. You have to penetrate the canopy. You're putting it out by air. So the volume that you're using is reduced anyway. So it's just really a challenge to get the, the product delivered to where the stink bugs are. What's that a, being said, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, keep going. Keep going. I was going to say that That being said, we do have some aerial applicators in our state that do a really good job of controlling stink bugs.
0: What I uh, was going to build on this and just ask, well, what, what product or what... Um, types of active ingredients do you recommend for this? I could, again, I can imagine, you know, coverage and, and getting into the plant. Maybe you want a systemic in, insecticide that's going to provide um, a little bit better coverage than something that's a contact toxin that may not come in contact with the stink bugs if they're buried
1: deep in the plant. Oh, I, that's definitely on my wish list, like that kind of insecticide. But yeah, I'm wondering <laughs>
2: what you think, Matt. What what would be a systemic foliar product?
0: Um, so there, uh, and I don't know if these are appropriate for stink bugs. Again, we're take a step back. Uh, you know, not only are we talking about corn, but we're talking about stink bugs, and those don't tend to be a problem for us in Iowa. Um, but it is something that's kind of on our radar because the brown marmorated is established and you know, to what extent it's going to be a pest, I, we still don't know, uh, but uh, it's something we want to be aware of and kind of help train ourselves. So when I think about systemics, we've got some products that are a mix of a pyrethroid and an imidacloprid, and you get some uh, plant uptake with those foliar neonics. Uh, they're still contact poisons, but, you know, they can be absorbed by the plant a bit. I don't know how well they 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 are absorbed and how much you know additional protection you get with those foliar applied neonics than you do with the seed treatments. Um, and they're not, it's definitely not all going in the plant and there's can be quite a bit that's lost both when applied as a seed treatment and to foliage. But yeah, I was curious if those are the kind of things you're recommending.
1: Well, uh, to your point, like the seed treatments that we're using to have activity on stink bugs are neonicotinoids. And so they do have activity, but foliar, they don't. I mean, I, I think there's just not enough of them. Uh, you have to think about ingestion versus contact. It's ingesting it as when it's, when it's a seed treatment and it's inside the plant versus contact when you're spraying it foliarly. And then I, I'm, I'm assuming whatever gets in the plant and the stink bugs able to feed on just the dose isn't high enough. So unfortunately we, All we have left in corn is broad spectrum insecticides. So pyrethroids are effective. And then among the pyrethroids, bifenthrin is effective for two reasons. One, you can put more of it out. So the highest labeled rate hasn't the amount of active ingredient you're putting it out is three times higher than the amount of active ingredient of another pyrethroid. So there's that. You're just putting more of the stuff out. And the second reason is it has more activity against brown stink bugs, which are fairly tough to kill. Southern green and the greens I mentioned, any old pyrethroid seems to work well. But for those browns, pyrethrins the ticket. So is so, that... Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Erin.
2: Um, Dominic, when you're doing your sampling, your scouting, are you lumping nymphs and adults all together or are you just counting adults?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so we we would lump nymphs and adults in together. But the nice thing is that they're typically two-generation-a-year pests, and so they've already undergone that first generation before they go into corn, and then their second generation tends to be in soybeans later season, and so we don't see a whole lot of nymphs in corn. Now, there is some um, nymphs in any crop throughout the season, but there's just not a whole lot of them.
2: Okay. And the pyrethroids would be effective on the adults? You're saying like bifenthrin?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Okay. I've heard in other systems where they're where they're sprayed and they like act dead. They kind of drop from plants, but then they sort of wake up and come back to life. So, do do you ever see any of that where they appear dead but resume activity?
1: I I would say that in the field, I've never followed a spray that quickly to okay. answer that question. But but to answer the question about bifenthrin. Being more active than the pyrethroids, we did some glass file bio bioassays, and we did we did see that behavior happening with all the pyrethroids. So okay. there's definitely some of that happening in the field, and it's a concern of ours because we recommend bifenthrin for that stink bug in corn, cotton, and soybeans. So it's like multiple routes of exposure to the same chemical throughout the season. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay.
0: Um, Digging in the literature, uh, knowing a little bit about soybeans and stink bugs. There's been efforts to breed soybeans for resistance to stink bugs that has had, I think it's fair to say, limited success. And I I think I've even heard some breeders say, um, if you can find stink bug resistance, great, let us know, because we just don't see it in the same way that we do for, say, soybean aphids and and other critters. Um, I'm curious what you think about on the corn side. You've got BTs for leps and beetles. What about for stink bugs and whether it's a a GMO-based trait or something found within the germplasm? Any evidence of uh, host plant resistance being a tool for farmers?
1: I haven't searched the literature for host plant resistance for stink bugs and corn. So I, I don't know. I don't know if you would like you could make the some of the cell walls tougher or something to resist penetration. Or, you know, it seems like when that primary ear is first forming, like you can, you can just peel, peel it back and kind of see it forming and it's like smaller than what they call like a salad bar ear around here. It seems like their stylants aren't long enough to penetrate in there. So maybe if you could do something with penetration, host plants, host plant resistance would work. Um, Yeah. BT would be, or whatever, some kind of, some kind of trait that would kill them would be a great option. And we could definitely use it in soybeans because, you know, that's where they're piling up after the corn is harvested. Our corn's harvested here in August and then cotton becomes unattractive. And so later in the season, in like, say September, October, they're all in soybeans and they're all reproducing. Most of the time the soybeans are past the stage where they can get direct harm from the stink bugs. So it's just essentially like a, a factory for reproduction. But we plopped into some fields late September last year and out of the 14 fields we plopped into like three were above threshold for stink bugs and there were still stink bugs susceptible so you know so yes like host plant resistance would be awesome in both corn and soybeans and cotton for that matter
2: so matt i don't know if you've heard about short stature corn have you heard about some uh, efforts um through industry to develop Um, Basically, it's a lot of similar genetics, just the plants are kind of crunched down. So they're not as susceptible to maybe like wind injury, that kind of thing. And I think from what I understand, basically, the the inner nodes are shorter. And I think like the stalks are a little bit thicker. I wonder if just having a bigger diameter corn stalk would, like as you said, Dominic, make it harder to, to penetrate and reach those ear cells. I don't know.
0: I hadn't heard about that. Is that derecho, derecho-proof corn? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I don't I, I You know, Aaron Gasman, he's an entomologist here. He has a couple of research projects on short stature corn for corn pests. And I'm not sure. Um, we've had a couple of derechos, some of those high-line straight winds, and I'm not sure if they were impacted or not. It was some poor graduate student, so I'm sure we'd hear about it if his corn research got flattened.
0: Well, what do you think, Dominic?
1: Soybean pest podcast. How you feel? Do we leave too hard? I I think we covered it. I just feel bad that it was so much on corn and the soybean oh. pest podcast. But no. I
2: feel bad.
1: No, this what? Well, uh,
0: what can we say? Soybean farmers are also corn farmers. It's true. And and we're about value. We're going to give them a two for two for one. And, No, it's interesting. I mean, it's, uh, like you said, these are insects that go back and forth between corn and soybeans. So it's not as if there isn't a connection. Um, Yeah. And it's, uh, you you started off uh, talking about stink bugs and the connection with wheat, and that's not a crop we see a lot of up here. And I'm just, you know, kind of maybe to wrap this up, uh, is that uh, essential for maintaining uh, stink bug population having those three crops uh and having enough, you know, uh of them around that you build up a population uh such that you've got these perennial problems with them.
1: So weed is not essential. All you need is corn and soybeans. We have a a large farm here and we worked out there because they number one, they had a stink bug problem and number two, there's no weed around. So it's like this perfect laboratory and they they rotate these big blocks of corn and soybeans every year it's 20 25,000 acres of soybeans 20 to 25,000 acres of corn and they just flip-flop them every year they had gotten themselves into a stink bug problem because the stink bugs would overwinter in the woods move on to corn they'd harvest the corn they would have another generation soybeans they'd move from the soybeans into the woods for the winter and guess what was there the next spring it was corn Mm-hmm. So we, we did a bunch of work like, uh, manipulating the, the weeds, the ditch banks surrounding the fields between the overwintering habitat and the corn, thinking that maybe if we mowed the ditches, ditches or eliminated some of the broad leaves or eliminated entirely that we would stop the stink bugs. And we were able to manipulate the numbers of stink bugs in the ditch banks, but we did nothing to the numbers of stink bugs in corn. Mm-hmm. So. So all that's essential is corn, stink bugs, and something for them to overwinter in, in my opinion. That's interesting.
0: We've had some people come out back when the brown... I can't hear you, Matt. Read...
1: Can't you hear me? Now
2: we
0: can. Oh, boy, I can't do a podcast if you can't hear me. As I tell my kids, if if I'm not talking, then what are you listening to? Um, so... Uh, we had some people come out back when the brown marmorated stink bug was first starting to cause trouble on the East coast. And we invited them out to tell us what they were learning. And we had one, Tracy Lesky came out and I picked her up at the airport and we're driving up from Des Moines to Ames. And she's like, you don't have enough trees. You're never going to have a problem. And I, yeah. I was like, wow, that's kind of uh uh, a plus side to something we kind of complain about: oh, we never have enough trees in Iowa. Um, but yeah, maybe we're we're going to miss out on this kind of pest if we don't have that, uh, if we don't have sufficient overwintering habitat to maintain populations for the millions of acres of corn and soybeans that we have, because we have plenty of those. We just
1: you you have a little bit more woods than we do. Oh yeah, yeah, the southeast is a very patchy landscape with a, with a lot of woods surrounding these fields. Well, one thing that's not clear to me is the extent to where they might overwinter, like in, in soybean stubble, you know, especially in no-till situations. There's just a lot of evidence that they're more of an issue behind no-till, but it's really difficult to st- study stink bugs and overwintering. So like there's Why some is that? Who, I I think they, I think they congregate in areas that we, and they're so spread out across the landscape that we just can't find them. So okay. so they're like – there's these clumps somewhere. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. That's what but I think. But when you of. find them, you find them in groups together? Is that – I've are, done a lot of looking, and I've never found them. Oh. So uh, there was a group working before I started that put out a bunch of overwintering traps in the woods. I mean, just hundreds of overwintering traps. And they caught some, you know, so – that's just what I think I think they I think yeah, they congregate yeah, yeah. otherwise you'd find them everywhere, right <laughs> everywhere. i I hunt here on the research station where I'm located, and I'll be sitting in the deer stand in the winter and they're like flying by my head. I can see them and hear them, so they're they're going into the woods they're overwintering, but I don't know where they're at interesting so
2: hey, are still... you more on the on the western side of the state?
1: I'm on the eastern side of the state I' oh, on the
2: eastern, and so as you move west is it would it be more wooded less wooded uh okay so east
1: of here is less wooded because it's former swampland that's drained and they cut all the trees down and then there's okay. this whole area that's they call like the coastal plain that's just really small fields very patchy lots of woods and then yes as you move into the western part of the state there's less farmland a lot more woods and it it changes a lot so the okay. the nice thing about working here is you can work in a, a a diverse landscape and ask some of those questions, right? Like is patchiness mm-hmm. important? And mm-hmm. I have a colleague on, on campus, Anders Hussef, that's done a lot of work with those questions. But I you know, going back to the no-till thing, like in Brazil, they describe, you know, major stink bug issues behind no-till. So I wouldn't count out the fact that you don't have a lot of ones to mean that you wouldn't have a lot of stink bugs, but I just don't know how important no-till is as an overwintering habitat. Again, to go back to the "I don't know" theme of this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, that's wonderful. We got we brought a special guest in to tell us that repeatedly.
0: <laughs>
2: would you have, would you have any sense of how many acres have some sort of amount of no-till in Iowa, Matt?
0: Uh, yeah, it's patchy. Uh, it's not uh, evenly distributed. There are parts of the state where there's more no-till than others, but I think the estimate statewide is something like twenty to thirty percent. Maybe 25 to 30%. Some some sort
2: of no-tillage.
0: Yeah, and and there are some places where, you know, farmers have kind of figured it out. They've got the soil type and um, the equipment for it. And so you see uh, areas where there's good adoption of no-till, but there are some areas where, yeah, still still don't see it. Um, Mm -hmm. Not to say that, you know, it can't be done. It can be, but, you know, there's uh several reasons why farmers may not practice no till some of it is timing for planting you know, it, it slows planting down especially when you know you've got uh, a wet spring and we've had a lot of variation uh in our springs we've had some springs where we wonder if we have the soil moisture even to plant into and then we've had a spring like this last one where uh there were rain delays it was cold and and my limited understanding of uh, the effects of no-till on the soil is it it slows the the warming and draining down, and that just makes it you know harder for farmers to get in. Um, this is probably the worst topic for three entomologists to talk about <laughs> soil tilt soil till discussion <laughs> amongst entomologists. Uh, we're very comfortable saying we don't know when it comes to ent- uh, entomology questions, but uh, we're going to talk about no-till. Oh, we know all the. <laughs> we got all the answers for that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, tying this back to uh, stink bugs. Yeah, it'd be, uh, I, I don't. My turn to say it. I don't know uh, how much risk our farmers are at for stink bugs and adopting uh, no-till practices. Uh, there are other issues that come with that you know, that, uh, are higher up the list. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, wouldn't have been the first thing I thought of, you know, in terms of, you know, problems that would arise with no-till. But yeah. then I was the person who started this whole conversation off with, yeah, I don't think of stink
1: bugs as being all that big of a pest in corn. And, you know, One last thing is like, like overwintering habitats seem very important. I actually have a student right now who's, we're trying to see if, uh, cornfields near certain types of overwintering habitats are more at risk. So we're actually in the woods characterizing what's in the woods because it seems like in these areas where we have heavier stink bug issues, there are smaller fields surrounded by a lot of woods. Mm. But then there are parts of the state where there are just large acreages of nothing but field crops, you know, soybeans and corn, maybe wheat, maybe cotton, maybe not but it can be a field just in the middle of that. And you might be able to pick some trees out in the distance and it'll be loaded with stink bugs. So early season too. So I would say overwintering habitat is important to what degree, you know, it's important. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Um, Not hard to spend a lot of time talking about this one set of insects. And uh, I was just thinking while you were describing the potential relationship between overwintering habitat and stink bug outbreaks. It's like, well, which stink bug? Because we started the conversation, you listed three uh, that you described as kind of frequent pests. And then we talked about brown marmorated, which isn't a big problem in your uh, neck of the woods, no pun intended. Um, But yeah, it sounds like we could have a longer discussion about the variable response of landscape features by each of those species. But we try to keep this to about a 20 to 30 minute podcast and we're getting into extra time. And I still we're have 40 minutes here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I still have our, if, if our listener is still awake, uh, I wanted to challenge the two of you to what Aaron has called a fit and keep you fit with the fun insect trivia.
2: And Dominic is very fit. So this is a good way to end the podcast.
0: So, um, uh, This one is going to be more of a traditional uh, lightning round style question. I just ask you to don't buzz in early because we want to give our our listener a chance to uh, answer this before the experts uh, do. So, uh, hey, we're talking about stink bugs, right? That uh, family of insects, Pentatomidae, the first part of the word, uh, pent- is Greek for five. And I was wondering over the weekend, to what is that pent, that five, related to? And uh, notice that the common name stink bug is not the common name in Europe. In Europe, the common name is, anyone know? Give you a quick one. This isn't even part of the fit. All right, it's a shield bug. And in looking at, uh, by the way, uh, to our listener, we're getting a lot of yes, nodding of heads by uh, Dominic and Aaron. And if you look at a stink bug, you know, from the top down, the head, thorax, abdomen, yeah, it kind of looks like a a shield. And I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, if I I skip ahead, I can kind of see a a five-sided shield. So the question to you all is, Pentatomidae, the Pent. What's the uh, what's the five? Oh, Erin has just logged in her answer on the chat, Dominic. A little pause, which is always awesome in an audio format. So Dominic went with mine, five points on a shield. And uh, that's what we call in the business, Dominic, a red herring. Because Erin is right. Pentatomidae is known for having five segmented antennae throughout the many members of that family. and It's not an
2: unusual thing, right? I mean, they're not the only insects with five, right?
0: No, but, uh, but of the, uh, what, over 47,000 species, that's a, a trait that they all share. In addition to being Hemiptera, having the... What we call it, hemiolytris, wing covers, uh, and the piercing, sucking mouth parts that you know make them true bugs. Yeah, pentatomidae, five-segmented antennae. There we go. All right, Dominic, how'd that feel?
1: Uh, fantastic. You know, I I always listen to the fit, and sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong. I, I I'll be honest, I thought Five points on the shield before you even said shield. I thought that's, I thought you were going to ask this question and I thought that was going to be my answer. Were you and studying? Were you studying? No, that? no, 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 no. I just, I, I don't know. Like I, I thought like you in my head, like it's the five, five points on the shield. So anyway, I, I wasn't too humiliated. You know, it's fine. Good. <laughs> Not good, about good, it. good for Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I, you
0: know what, uh, what I'm picking up here is there might need to be a rematch. We might have to have you back uh, in August when
1: you're harvesting. Oh, you're on, Aaron.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So like like you said at the beginning, Matt, Dominic studies a lot of different insects and a lot of di- different cropping systems. We could have him on like every week talking about something else. And so as an example, later today, he's our featured speaker for an extension entomologist working group, and he's going to totally switch gears and talk about corn earworms. So he's like a master. Oh, wow.
1: wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, But I, I will say like, you, you know, I'm an extension research entomologist and I say for extension, we have to do everything right. You have to do any, you get, you get a soybean gall midge. You have to be the expert on it. Right. Like no, nobody does anything about it, but for the research, no, we really do focus on corn earworm and stink bugs because they're okay. huge. They're huge pests in our state. So okay. I'm a little bit more laser focused on that.
2: And, and it's so much more difficult because they feed on multiple crops. Exactly. Some yeah. of the things that I study, you know, it's a single host or, you know, narrow host range. So you have a really tough job. Yeah.
0: So maybe we should have you come back and talk uh, corn earworm. Yeah. And the challenges for all of your crops.
2: We could review all the common names it's had in its history.
0: Ooh! Oh, that could be a good trivia question. I like that one. All right. All right, well, thank you very much, Dominic. Really appreciate you coming on. uh, Thank you. Sharing all of uh, uh, your information, knowledge uh, about stink bugs. Hopefully, um, you'll come back again. It's great talking with you.
2: Keep listening anyway, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If if you say no thanks on the return visit.
1: Proud to be your one listener. (laughs) all right thank you
0: very much aaron did we do it is it done yeah we're done did it all right this is where we wrap
1: up see you next week